In many ways, my theme this morning has already been anticipated in some of the worship and some of the prayers that have taken place. My topic is greatness, true greatness. We understand that God is truly great. And by that, we don't just mean people who take the name of God to justify their own actions and think that they are glorifying God. No, God's greatness is in himself. And we all notice greatness. Many people aspire to it. We certainly admire it. What is greatness? Well, recognizing greatness very often has to do with looking at the achievement of people. And there have been historically and currently with us today men and women who we can say are truly great because what they've done in the world of science, medicine, humanitarian action, literature, football, and uh, others we may not have read about in history books or may not make the journals, magazines, and headlines of our newspapers today, but they, they carry greatness. I remember a lady who Amanda and I met and some time ago in Ireland. We were on holiday, and uh, we visited a certain spot in Ireland, and it was Woodrow Wilson's house. Has anybody been there in Ireland and seen that? I know Simon has. We talked about it earlier. And uh, that's where Woodrow Wilson was born, and, and later on he went to America, became president. But the lady who looks after it is truly a great lady. And her greatness was not that she was the equivalent of the Irish tourist official who could show you the house. It was a real house. It wasn't so much set up as a museum, but she welcomed people. And we went down the little winding path into that kind of cottage, and there she was. And she spoke little about Wilson or the house, but she spoke a great deal about a great deal of other things. And um, I wish I could put on the accent and, and quote her, but, but she was just quite a remarkable lady. And we went out feeling uplifted, feeling as if we had just experienced something special. And so, in my eyes, that is a great lady. But what is greatness, true greatness, in kingdom terms? I put it to you that it has nothing much to do with personality, ability, or even our own personal ambition or achievements. It has to do with everything that we see God doing in Christ and replicating in our lives. I'm going to read Philippians chapter 2 for you today, verses 1 through 4. Can you, can, I, can you please take out your Bibles? I don't just mean this. Uh, make sure you have a physical copy. Oh, well, don't worry. You stay. You stay as you are. But there's something good about leafing through a Bible, the smell of bonded leather or plastic, whatever it happens to be, and the pages and feeling the Word of God in your hands. All right. 
So having said that, we're going to read the digital version on the screen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Philippian believers. It's a very joyful letter. Rejoicing is the key theme. It's a thank you letter. He's in prison, but he's sending news back to the Philippians saying, hey, you know, I'm okay, and actually what's happened to me has resulted in progress of the gospel. Of course, some preach Christ out of rivalry uh, and think they can add to my, my problems, but I don't mind that. Christ is preached, and in that I rejoice. But, but thank you, thank you for your support. And by the way, I want to deal with an issue that I know to be current in your church. What was that issue? I don't suppose he wrote the letter specifically to address the disunity that was developing, but it came in, and he thought it's important to address. Now, apparently, there was a division or a potential mother of all divisions, because of two personalities in the church. One was a leading lady by the name of Yodia, and the other was named Syntyche. Pastors and preachers often say they should have been named odious and soon touchy, but whatever it was, these were leading women, and they'd worked together with Paul in partnership with with him. And for some reason, they were at loggerheads. And the situation was getting worse. And so Paul says, come now, we need to deal with this, because if our unity is destroyed, how can we proclaim Christ effectively? And he, he addresses certain things which can happen. I'm not accusing these wonderful women. They, they were probably both wonderful and formidable with strong personalities. But I'm not accusing them of this. But I just know from my own experience down through the years, that the things that attack leaders more than many things is rivalry, jealousy, selfish ambition, and pride. So pray for us. Pray for us. Now, I'm really serious. The devil gets in that way very, very often. But we're not like that, and we don't want to be like that. And so these ladies had to be confronted. But Paul does not just write them a personal letter. Because he says, we all have to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It is all our responsibility. I guess one of those ladies might have got together with her cell group and said, do you know what this other lady has said? And then they start batting her wicket and championing her cause. And then somebody from the other lady hears the same thing. So if people did not pass on gossip or add fuel to the fire, or as we say in Africa, put more pepper in the pot, then things would die down. So in many ways, 
Paul is addressing the whole congregation and, and this word is to us all today. And I chose this passage not necessarily because of these first four verses, but because what happens after this is, is the whole of the Christmas story put in the most amazing ways. Paul actually appears to be quoting from a hymn that was sung, or a worship song maybe, that was sung at the particular time. And, and so I've chosen to follow through in some verses in this passage right the way through to Christmas. And so what is it all about? Where does it begin? What constitutes greatness? I think it all begins with connections. I'm not talking about connecting with people in high places. As we say today, it's not, who, it's not what you know, it's who you know. I'm talking about going above all of that and connecting with the living God. And today, we have hyper-connectivity. On our smartphones, computers, Wi-Fi connections, internet, we are hyper-connected. We're just two or three clicks away from almost any information that we'd like to know. And that has given us unprecedented opportunities to be connected with other people. I mean, the internet has truly shrunk the world. From my mobile phone, I can manage my office in London, wherever I am in the world. I can speak through video, audio, and text with multiple people all at the same time in different nations, different time zones, as if they were physically present with me. And you can do it too, and probably do. But with all this hyper-connectivity in the digital world, isn't it surprising that today we have more instances of people feeling lonely, isolated, and disconnected? And the reason is digital connection is good, but it's not enough. We need to sit down with people, physically be present with them, give them our greatest gift, which is our unconditional love and acceptance, and connect with them as one fellow human being to another, and for us as Christians, with one person who is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, connecting with somebody else who's, who's, in whom the Holy Spirit also dwells. I start off with connection because the gospel is all about relationship. Relationship with our Father. Relationship with one another. And, of course, relationship with ourselves. You may have noticed in those verses that I read, the whole Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, it's all there. The love of God the encouragement and grace of Christ, the fellowship in the Holy Spirit. This is one of the reasons why we repeat our own version of the grace almost at the end of almost every service. But this shows us that the gospel is rooted in relationship because God himself is a relational God. I mean, in himself, in his being, There is relationship between the Father and the Son 
first and second persons of the Trinity, relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the first, the second, and the third members of the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity, are in constant dynamic relationship and interchange. And is into that glorious relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that wonderful foundation of all family, of all identity, of all relationship, of all loving, of all giving, of all serving, of all other orientation, rooted in that experience that God has within himself. It's into that that we've been invited to come and join. It's almost as if God said, this is so wonderful, I want to replicate it, I want to reproduce it. And so he created humanity in his image. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Above all things, it means that we have been created also as relational beings. Many times when we think about that, we go straight from God's image into the activity that that points to. God's image means that we are representatives of God and therefore have a job to do. But it's useless to think about that and fruitless to engage in that without first engaging relationally with God and with one another. In other words, the foundation of all that we do for God is who we are to God and who he is to us. And it also means that we are able to connect. When you connect with God, other connections start immediately happening. And I find that when I am in communion with God, having connected with him or refreshed my connection, or actually connected maybe for, uh, for, for, for the first time in that time of prayer, the first person that I immediately reconnect with is myself. Now, don't forget that. It's impossible to connect with others if you're not connected to yourself. It's impossible to accept others unless you accept yourself. It's impossible to understand others until you understand yourself. So the first connection is with God, and the second connection is with yourself. And that is a positive connection. Because he has made us different from what we were. My true self is my new self in Christ. Connecting with your old self it should only happen very occasionally in order to crucify it and get on with the real business of becoming who you really are in Christ. And loving yourself does not mean putting yourself first to the detriment of others. Loving yourself means seeing who you are in Christ and being delighted by what you see. When God saw Jesus... He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when God sees you, he says, wow, my son, my daughter, and he is well pleased. And you say, well, that's impossible because I know what I am. Oh, he knows what you are. But you are no longer who you were. You are now a new creation in Christ. And that's how we can rejoice in our new identity in Christ. And by the way, that person is not so completely different from the person that you were so that you suddenly now cease to be who you were in your personality and in your uniqueness. No, your natural 
physical, genetic you, made up of all your experiences, all that is redeemed and sanctified and glorified and filled with the Spirit so that now we become more like we than ever before. And this is how we can rejoice in our self-knowledge and in our self-acceptance. And I'm speaking spiritually and theologically today. I'm not speaking out of a self-help manual. I'm not talking pop psychology. I'm talking about really knowing yourself and discovering yourself in Christ and finding that God's plan for you is to make you more beautiful than you could have ever imagined or one day in a vain way thought you already were. It's about God's love possessing your heart and shaping your every thought and reaction. Mind you, what I've just said now is easy to say. That's a lifelong process. I am finding that. I know you probably find the same. But as soon as you identify yourself, having connected with God, you discover this about yourself. You were made for connection. You were made for relationship, first of all with God and then with others. And where that connection isn't happening or not as, as, as effectively as it should, there is a deep craving on the inside of you for honest, deep, pure connection. And that's where the gospel comes in. The community of Christ, the people of God. And it's all rooted in the revelation that God has given us. And here, what we need to remember is that Paul is in apostolic relationship with these believers. That is, Paul was one of the primary apostles. He said, I was born out of due season because he was not one of the twelve. But nevertheless, he was brought into apostleship by the call of Jesus Christ and he had a special role in establishing the doctrines and the revelation of Christ in the early church. The Gospels bear witness to the physical Jesus present But the epistles begin to talk about our experience of knowing Jesus even though he's not with us physically. And if we connect with the apostolic message of the gospel, that's how we connect with God. We need a revelation of Jesus Christ, of course we do, but it must be a revelation that is not based on our preferences our emotions, or our personal experiences because these things aren't always trustworthy. But on the relationship that exists between reality and truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. So be assured, first of all, that if you've connected with God as ultimate reality, supremely revealed in Christ, as God manifested in the flesh, you are in a relationship with truth. Truth is not just statements. R.T. Kendall is very good at pointing out that truth must be capable of being put in propositional form. God is love. Propositional form. But mere propositions are not enough. 
You could repeat like a parrot, God is love, and you could repeat like a parrot, all things work together for good to those who love God. You could repeat like a parrot, propositional truth, but until you realize that behind that truth, in fact, the very substance of that truth is not an abstract idea, but a person, Jesus Christ, who is the truth, and we're in relationship with him. Now, all this presupposes an experience, a connection, a flow of the Holy Spirit active in your life. The only way we can enter into connection with God is by truth revealed by the Spirit. Our communion with one another is connection in the Spirit. Recognizing one another is all about the Spirit of God. Now, we may meet somebody who comes from a Christian tradition or a race or a culture or a generation, very different from us. But if that person is a believer, what we recognize is not what we have in common in terms of age, gender, or any of the other things, or, or, or social structure, or, or race, or nationality. All those things the world pushes and throws in our face and miss the whole point. It's like the devil is trying to confuse us with all these divisions when really we are united in the spirit. I had a bit of correspondence in one of my Instagram messages when uh, somebody was communicating with me saying that ev everybody is united because we all have the Holy Spirit. They were talking about believers, unbelievers, atheists, Buddhists, Muslims, Christians. Uh, and uh, to an extent that is true because if God created all of us, then there is that reflection of who God is seen in the face and the life and culture and traditions of every single person, even if they are far removed from our experience. But it is not enough. Only those who have surrendered to Christ become temples of the Holy Spirit. And so if it is possible for unity to be out there amongst so much diversity, how much more should we value what we have, which is our unity in the Spirit, Holy Spirit. And that is about recognizing and receiving one another. That's, that's where it begins. Recognizing one another, who we are in Christ, and receiving one another. Now, I want to emphasize again, because you cannot recognize who your brother or your sister is until you really know that you are a child of God. They may be a child of God, but unless you know you're a child of God, there's no brother-sister-brother-brother relationship. So receiving yourself, recognizing who you are, and accepting who you are. I, I don't know why, last time we have Dr. Bobby here who's, who is a psychiatrist, and every time I make these points, I just have to say, uh, you know how important this is in the world of psychology. You know that. Uh, but I'm not talking about psychology today, as important as that is. I, it is just such a main plank of biblical revelation that you and I have to be on good terms with ourselves. And I struggled with that on and off for many, many years. It's so easy to think that being, you know, down on yourself or being self-loathing or rejecting yourself is what it means to take up your cross. No, no, no. Taking up your cross, yeah, 
reject any bad version of you, which is a counterfeit of the true you, but embrace who you are in Christ and then learn to be and become who you are. Receive yourself. Accept yourself. Amen? You're getting me. And then you can learn to receive one another. Why would it be ever a problem to receive and accept somebody else? Why? All kinds of things in us, maybe. But also because there are so many differences. So many things that if we're not careful, we can focus on and bring unnecessary separation and unnecessary cause for complaint or quarrel or gossip. No, you know, we are different. In fact, we are more different than you could ever imagine because there is only one you, only one me. You may say, well, thank God for that. But the point is, if that's not too self-deprecating because I actually rejoice in who I am. So every time you meet somebody, don't expect to see yourself. When you meet somebody, you're going to see an other, not another, an other, uh, another person who is different from you. And that's where the mystery, the glory, the beauty, the curiosity comes in. That's how we can learn to connect with other people by being fascinated in principle by the understanding that you are standing before somebody who is unique, who is loved by God, somebody who has a heart which requires investment. And when you discover that truth, you will find it so much easier to receive people who are different from you and to accept them as they are, being prepared to overlook things that might irritate you, things that you disagree with, or things that you are sure, doggone right, are wrong about them. Here's a big, 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 big lesson. I don't know if I fully learned it, but in bringing up children, being married for so many years, being in the ministry here in this church over the years, I've learned something that has kept my sanity. Maybe I will sit down with Simon one day and say, Simon, here's how to keep your sanity when I have moved on to my next stage in life. I'm not talking about heaven, not going there yet. (laughs) I'm talking about the mission field. (laughs) say, oh, Simon, here's how I kept my sanity. And Simon might say, are you sure you really kept it? (laughs) The point is, is that it's a very valuable lesson. Don't try to change anybody. Accept them as they are. Why? Is it because there's nothing wrong with them? Is there stuff wrong with you? No, it's not our job to change anybody. It's the Holy Spirit's job. And if you get close enough to somebody that they invite you into their life and share their struggles with you, then you become a fellow soldier. You stand with them and together move forward in their life towards more of God and and they will help you with yours. Amen, amen, and amen. And so Paul is really talking about what Larry Crabb calls relational holiness. And we see it in the first verse. The true nature of holiness. And it's all about relationship. Okay. 
Let's have a person, an imaginary person. In fact, I wouldn't need to imagine because there are hundreds of you here. I could put anybody up here who is a godly person. All right, so we have a godly person here. Now, let me describe this godly person. I wouldn't need to look at them. All I need to do is look at the scripture. If this is a godly person, this person is an encourager, a comforter, a person who doesn't allow fellowship to be hindered, a person who is full of affection and sympathy. Sympathy in its strong word. Today we prefer the word empathy, but actually sympathy means feeling with. It doesn't mean looking down on them or being judging or condescending. Oh, oh, poor you, I'm so glad I'm not like you. Not that kind of sympathy. Genuine, heartfelt feeling the joys and the pains of others. And that person is one with the Spirit, having the same love, and is working towards accord, working towards unity. Um, this is so illustrated by uh, the campaign of this general election. And I think almost every politician is promising unity. So we, we will be united. I will unite the nation this way. No, I will unite the nation that way. Somebody else says, I will divide the nation, but still unite the nation. And I, I don't know. But, but we see what we know, many of the politicians know, that Britain is in a perilous position of division. And a nation that's divided cannot stand. That's what we've been praying for. And we want that. But it can't happen without the Holy Spirit. And true godliness is this. And true godliness goes on to say, you're not behaving from rivalry or conceit, but in humility you're counting others more significant than yourselves. That is the ESV. Now, is it possible that you can see somebody and you can say, they are more significant than I am? Can you make that judgment? Significance in what aspect? Significance to God, yes. We're equal. Before God's eyes, this person who is a godly person and me are equally significant. But how then can you make somebody more significant than you? By putting their needs above yours. That's how you do it. You say, all right, what I'm going through, I'm struggling, and I will sh I'll share with you my struggles. But right now, what's more important to me is your struggles. I'm going to put my side on one side for a while. I'm going to focus on you. I'm going to look not just to my own interests, but to the interests of others. Unity is about other focus rather than being self-focused. And I guess that those two dear ladies... They will be in heaven. Well, they are already. Maybe I'll get to meet them and see if I'm right. Those two ladies were more focused on their hurts, their sense of being right, carrying their offenses, than they were focused on truly ministering to the other person. So Paul is seeking to address this, and he is going to give us the mother and father of all examples of what this means in the life of Jesus Christ. We'll pick that up as the series develops. But for now, let us make, take point of the fact that Paul uses his relationship, apostolic relationship, his connectedness with them to add to his appeal. 
If all this is true, then make me happy. Do it for me. Now, you may know many people who ask you to do it for them, and what they're wanting you to do is nothing to do with him. But when somebody has lived their life in such a godly way, and they say, follow me because I'm following Christ, do it for me because I'm asking you to do it for Jesus, that's a powerful incentive that can only happen when a church is a true community full of the Holy Spirit, seeking to work out all of these principles. So what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? Greatness in the kingdom of God is carrying the spirit of humility with authority. Meekness and majesty. Stuart, one of my fellow NLT members this week, brought a beautiful devotion. And he spoke about Joseph's coat of many colors and went through several coats in Joseph's experience. One of those coats was the coat he wore in Egypt with authority. And Stuart, who is not known, you know, he's not a fashionista, you know what I'm trying to say, said, wearing the coat of authority, it's not enough to wear it on its own. It needs a complementary garment called humility. Wow. Wow. We wear the garment of authority, but we wear the complementary garment of humility. Meekness and majesty, that wonderful Graham Kendrick hymn we sung, says it well. And in this spirit, we turn towards the Father and continue a life whatever it costs, of love, sacrifice at times, but always father-facing obedience. 